Welcome to the Landmark Apostolic Church Podcast. We hope that this message inspires you and brings impact to your life. Enjoy the message. I want to thank Brother Rice for allowing me this opportunity to ask me to teach again. It's only usually about once a year. That's, that's fine with me. I don't come up with very many good ideas. It takes a while. It, I mean, it takes a while. It takes time. But what I want to teach on tonight won't be as extensive as what I've usually taught on. It's just a simple theme. Uh, it'll be, it's about the compassion and the grace of God. You can give me this pistol. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I'll get the hang of it one of these days. No, but one of the things I'd like to start with to just kind of as the main focus to start off is Romans 8, 28 through 30. And this is actually very, it's something that's always drawn this to me. Oh, we got a fan. Anyways. No, but it's intriguing that we usually think of the grace, we usually overlook it. We, we, it's been used so much that eventually you, you don't know. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. I've heard that before. But there's no feeling to it. You've, it's like you hear a phrase over and over, and it becomes what's called a cliche. It eventually it loses its meaning. It's just a saying. It, doesn't, it means nothing because you've used it so much. So eventually, we can read what's said, but eventually we just, if we've read it so many times, we, we, it ha- loses its impact until, until you really stop and think about it. So the one thing I would like to start with is Romans 8, 28 through 30, is where Paul, he's, he's kind of laying out the, these five phases of God's eternal plan of salvation for man is where he starts with, is what I would like to start with. He says, starting in 28, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So the last verse is where he lays out these five things. It seems small, but it's actually very true. That's a very important thing. He says, whom he foreknew. And that's the first thing. You see, God's plan began with his knowledge that man would fall into sin. He he knew that was going to happen when he started. He's got, he knew that. But as a consequence, before he created everything, he had a plan in, in advance. He, he always had Calvary in advance as the center of the history of what was of his plan of salvation. He knew it was going to happen, so he already developed something. That's why he's in First Peter first 1 and 20, he says, he indeed was for a or ordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So it was always there. The plan was always there to remedy what we lost in, in the beginning, in the garden. Whenever sin entered, he knew that was going to happen, and so he already had a plan that was that to remedy it. That was the first thing he foreknew. 
because Adam, whom he foreknew, him he also called that he predestined. And this is where it becomes confusing to some people when he says predestined. Predestination is actually a lot of people, when you think of it, you think of something that you can't, that is already determined beforehand and you can't change. You can't change it. Uh, Cal John Calvin, whenever you hear the word predestination, you usually think of a term of a belief called Calvinism. And Calvinism held that God had already determined beforehand, before he did anything, who would go to heaven and who would go to hell, regardless of the choice of the individual. So basically, he decided, okay, you, you're, yep, you're going to heaven. You, no, 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 you're, you're not in my group. He, you're going to hell. He, that's what very, very extreme predestination a lot of people believe. There's people that really do believe that. They believe not only that, they believe every single event and action of your life is predestined. So they will believe that if you, say if you woke up this morning and you went to get something, say you decided, hmm, should I try Cheerios and Frosted Flakes, Cheerios and Frosted Flakes, and then you say, ah, let's go with Cheerios. They, uh, a Calvinist who believes in predestination would say you didn't choose it. That was already determined. You were just acting out. It was like a play that was already written beforehand. That's how, that's how it would be. They, like everything you do has already been determined. It's been already set. The problem with that is there's a very big flaw. Because if you really want to ascribe that, to God, if God determines every single action you do, you know what it also is determined? All the evil actions you do, all the bad actions, all the sin that you do. If you wanted to take it to its logical conclusion, that's the problem. God is not the author of sin or evil. If you really did that, guess who you would have to blame for all the sin in the world? You would have to blame God. Because if he's the one that made you do all the bad things, if he predestined you like a robot to do every single bad thing, that's who you would have to blame. And that's not, that's not God. You still have the choice. You are not some mindless robot. So that's how a hard Calvinist would view the term predestination. What Paul is referring to here is not the predestination of the individual. He's not saying the individual is determined to go to heaven or to hell. He's talking about the group. He's talking about the plan. The plan uh, is predestined for the church because it says specifically what is predestined. You are predestined to be conformed to what? To the image of his son, to, to Jesus who came, he died. And goes, you are to follow his example. That is what we are to be predestined to be conformed to. A lot of people will look at it and they will think that every action is, of yours is predestined. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about the plan of salvation is what was predestined. You still have to join it. You still have the choice to accept it or not. That's the difference. So it's the stress of what you're, where you're looking at. And he, but also he's because the ver, the uh, word whom is plural. Is it whom he foreknew? That word whom is plural. It's not singular. The word whom is plural, meaning it's the group. 
that it's referring to the church. Because when God set this up, he says, I am going to win. That is determined. You can choose to be with me or you can choose not to be with me. That's your choice. But I am going to win. So that is your choice. So, and so you always keep that in mind. He predestined the incarnation, the atonement, the church, and the ultimate salvation of everyone in the church. But as for your fate, he leaves that up to you. The third thing of the plan of salvation is the calling, because he predestined everything, but he, and he calls people to salvation. And I kind of talked about this in my last lesson with the book of Acts, where, where it says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When Peter quoted Joel, he quoted Joel chapter 2. And, he, and then it ends with Peter saying, it's to you, dear children, all who are far off, as me as the Lord our God shall call. He uses that saying that God calls, as me as the Lord our God shall call. But he also, but he's, also says, Joel also quotes, all who call upon the name of the Lord. God calls, but you got to respond. God calls people to repentance, but you have to respond to his call. It's, it's a two-way street. It's not just one way. God is calling people to repentance, but you have to respond. And so it's important because a lot of the other thing Calvinism would also view this as God is the only one calling and nobody else is responding. That's basically, he has already determined this. The problem is Jesus said, uh, it at a, as a context, Jesus said in Matthew 20, 16, he says, so the, the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. He's saying he calls everybody, but it's only those who respond. It, because, you know, he also would say he strays the gate, throws the way. There's not very many that will come. It doesn't mean he's not offering the choice. He's just saying not everybody's going to accept this. That's, it's just it's a fact. It's, it's what's going to happen. The fourth step he goes through is he says, whom he called, these he also justified. And this is just basically simply whom he calls out of sin, he basically justifies you. He counts you as righteous. Just simply that. It, that's he justifies. And the last thing he does in the plan is glorification, whom he also justified. Those, these he also glorified. This will not happen. This term glorified is the final step in the culmination of the sanctification process. You see, because ultimately. The righteous will receive glorified, sinless bodies. And it's interesting, he says they will, uh, he, he also glorified. He, Paul speaks of it in the past tense. He says these he also, he also glorified as if it already happened. Because in the mind of God, once you accept the plan and you continue in the plan, and that's a big if, if you continue in the plan, it's already a done deal. In the mind of God, you are. Uh, whenever He says these, He also glorified. Is if you continue in it, it's a done deal. It's done, as far as God is concerned. If you stay in the plan, because later on in Romans, Paul said of, of to the uh, Gentiles, He says, "Don't 
do not boast against the branches that were broken off because you were grafted in who were not the people. But that but unto them fell severity, but unto you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. If you continue in his goodness, there, there's a condition. It, it's if you continue. So that is actually the last thing. And we, and we probably will not receive, see that until the very end when he calls us all home. That's whenever everything will be renewed. It's, but we're waiting for that. We're waiting for that. So the, uh, there's one other place where he kind of goes through this in another way that Paul talks about this is actually in Ephesians. Right at the Ephesians 1, 4 through 13, he, if you don't notice, he does talk about the same thing. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. And what is the mystery of his will? He then says in the next verse, this is according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, he might gather together in one all the things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance. And Marie says, obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And he's, that's what the, is predestined, the purpose of, well, what is the inheritance? He says this, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted Christ, because he says, in whom ye also ye trusted. After that, ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance. He specifies what that is. That's the Spirit. The only thing that's going to get you off the ground is what is the Spirit in you. That's the only thing that's going to make sure your feet leave ground. That, that's been the only thing that is going to get you off the ground. Is that, That's why he died. Is, yeah. Because that is really, so whenever he's referring in Romans, he's, he elaborates it here a little bit further in more points. Because whenever it's glorified, well, how do you get glorified? You need the Spirit. If any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of us. He also said that in Romans. So further, in Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, Paul explains actually a further basis for this because you need the Spirit, but how do you get it? Now, on what basis do you get it? Because there was people that were saying, oh, I earned it, I earned it. No, no. 
He says, no, no. That's why he says it's through Christ you got this. He, he always will refer, go back to that. He says, you got this through Christ. You got this. Not something, he doesn't say you earned it. He says it's, it's through Christ you earned it. He always goes back to that. He says this, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. The word quickened means to make alive. It's just a, it's a Middle English, early modern English, actually, word that means to make alive. And, uh, to, and so what he, that's what he's saying. He says, by grace you are saved through faith. He has to remind, he says, he has quickened us together with Christ, and he adds, by grace you are saved through faith. It's not anything you earned. God gave it to you. He had to come down and die to give it to you and hath raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That term, walk in them, Paul would say, you know, walk in the Spirit, you won't, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. He said, if any man, man hath the Spirit of Christ, Amen. Have not the Spirit of Christ. He's none of us. He says, "You have." He says, "If you, if any man," he says it specifically. He uses the term. Welcomes. He says, "You have Christ in you, the hope of glory." The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is alive. The point. The point is, we don't receive the Holy Ghost by any merit of ourselves. That's what we, we always think. Why, why can't I get it? Why can't I get it? God wants to give it to you. It's, that's why he came and died, because the whole point, it's a gift of God given to us based on the sacrifice of what he did on the cross. That's the only reason we get it. We don't get it for anything. We do it because he came and he died and he did that. Because the, it's interesting, he actually does point this out. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, it's that he actually points this out. Why? He says, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. He says, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Had, the reason God had to come down as a man is because he had to reverse the curse of the fall. Because whenever Adam ate that fruit with his wife Eve, they both ate it. They were both guilty of it. That started the process. Death entered. So a man, he messed it up. And to reverse it, 
somebody had to come down and basically live one perfect sinless life because God said, I need something to pay for that because sin is sin and something has to die for this. Something has to be paid for this. And the hits and the, mer- and the, the glory of God demanded something to pay for it. And so what did he do? He says, I will come down. I will do it myself. And by doing that, you don't realize, well, why did he have to die? Because something had to be paid for this. Something had to reverse the process of what happened. He says, but because by man came death, but also by man came the resurrection of the dead. Because whenever he died and then he rose again, he basically, by conquering death, he's the only one that really ever, as Brother Rice said on Easter, he says, the only one that ever really was able to come back from the dead himself. And he conquered death. He's the, and, by, and by virtue of that, guess what? He can share it with anyone he wants. Since he conquered death, he is actually the one that says, I can give the, I can make sure you don't, if you, you join me, don't, hey, I can give you this power. I can give you, I can make sure you don't, I can give you the spirit. And that will make sure that you don't. It's a, and it's very intriguing that he had to do that. And it's intriguing that we like to think, well, I earned this. We, we like to think that, oh, I earned this. But that's a very self-righteous kind of thing if you wanted, if you took it that far. Because, you see, God shows his righteousness in a very peculiar way, I would say. And this is just me. He shows his righteousness through his compassion, his mercy, in forgiving us our sins by doing the exact opposite of what we would do. You see, in humanity's fallen state, we can, we can be mean. We can be ugly to each other. We really can. We can be very ugly to each other. So what we would do in our fallen state, if somebody falls short, you'll see some people, they will be self-righteous. The self-righteous in a sinful nature wants to condemn the fault of others to make ourselves feel superior. Because we, we don't want to be that. We want to criticize somebody so that we make ourselves feel better. And we condemn unrighteousness to excuse away our knowledge and our guilt of our own unrighteousness. We do that to make ourselves feel better, but really we know we're just as bad. We just try to cover it up. But you see, the irony is in the, irony is in the paradox. God shows his righteousness in that even though he is the only one really qualified to be labeled as self-righteous, he is righteous. He is self-righteous because he is righteous in and of himself. He is the only one that can claim that to be truly righteous. But he doesn't do what we do. Whenever he sees somebody fallen, he does not condemn them, even though he has every right to. He shows compassion. He doesn't hold it against us, which is very, it's something we can't understand. We can't understand, well, I was in the wrong, I know. But he doesn't hold that against us. He he chooses to show mercy. He He chooses to show compassion on us when we've fallen. 
rather than us. We try, would love to condemn to try to make ourselves feel better, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He has every right to, but he doesn't. I mean, it's strange. It's because by not using the one thing that we want, we want to be self-righteous. We really want it. We, we would love to have it, but we can't. And we, can, and we would love to try to use that if we could. And he has it, and he doesn't use it. The one thing we would love to do, he doesn't use it. Again, he shows his righteousness that way. He shows true righteousness by showing compassion on somebody when he could very much easily pass judgment. That is the righteousness of God is to show compassion. Because we like to think of God as just one dimension. We, we like to think of God as, you know, Lord, forgive me, as, vending, as a vending machine, kind of in, in, impersonal, you know. Lord, forgive me. Oh, there's a ticket. Okay, I'm good. And next time, Lord, Lord, messed up again. Please forgive me. Ticket. Oh, I'm good. We like to think, we think of him in impersonal ways. If you aren't careful, you can think of him like that in as very impersonal way, but God it has personality, if you want to say, put it like that. God is a real being, and he does have personality. He is not just impersonal. He does care. And I'm putting that in a way because that way you can try to get it down to our level, because he is higher than us, but at the same time, he does have his own personality. He, has, he is his own being. And one he does is he does have compassion. But the one thing he says is, and I like how Paul points this out. Paul kind of brings us home to showing that God does have, does have, he is who he is. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever, on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So that it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Romans 9, 15 through 16. He says that to emphasize that God, it's not any of us. You can try to condemn somebody, but that's not your call. That's not your call. You can say, do you know what they did? Do you know what they, when God forgives somebody, you will probably have somebody come and they'll say, don't you know what they do? They did, and he says that's not your call. It's it's not of. That's why he says to Moses, "I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and whom I will have compassion, I will have compassion." That's not your call. That's mine. I forgave them, not you. That's the emphasis. So whenever a lot of people will stress, oh, uh, all the predestination is all this. That's not what. Paul is emphasizing God. Paul is emphasizing he can. He is not emphasizing who he can forgive. Not he is emphasizing God can forgive. It's his choice to forgive you. It's not some robotic interface or something to do. It's not that he will impersonally decide who will live, who will die. No, it's God's choice. It's God saying, "I forgive." It's personal. Not some arbitrary decision beforehand. No, he's saying in the moment, I forgive you. It's, we forget that. We forget that. That's why it's the irony. 
he could really, he could condemn us, but he didn't. It's God who shows mercy. This is why Paul says of the, Jew, of the Jews in Romans 10, 2 through 3, he actually then later says this of the Jews. He says, you know, they have a zeal. He says, for I bear them witness. He says, I bear them witness, speaking of the Jews, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. They don't offer forgiveness. They try to, they try to be self-righteous, he says, but they don't realize the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is in not showing condemnation. God shows his righteousness by doing the opposite of what we need to do. By forgiving. That is righteousness. Because you see, self-righteousness is ugly. It's ugly. You, you can't, there's no other way to put it. Self-righteousness, if you see it, whenever you, you'll know what it is, because it's ugly. You, you can just tell it's ugly. But the righteousness of God in how he could, but he doesn't. And he shows compassion whenever he could very well use it against us. That's righteousness. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Because he says this, they seek to establish their own righteousness, having not submitted to the righteousness of God. He then says in Romans 8, 4, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Who walk not after, who walk, as God foreordained beforehand, walk in them. And, he's, and he goes on to say these things. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, who came down as a man, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall, who shall lay any charge? Uh, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elective? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. I would like to point that out. People will say, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Again, if you are looking at predestination from a term of it's already determined, no. That's not what Paul is saying. It's like I just said. I, don't, I like to use this analogy. I don't know why all, this has always stuck with me. I like to imagine that God views this as just a little child, a little child who doesn't know any better. They know they messed up. They know they messed up, and they're, and they're scared. They're scared. As any child would be, they'd be, oh, what, what, what was what was I thinking? But he comes and he says, I know. I know. And he says, No, we're gonna we're gonna fix it. We're gonna fix it. Come here. Come here. He helps you. He could show justice, but he shows mercy. He shows compassion. And you have somebody come along that says, Don't you know what they did? Don't you know who that is? Do you know who that, who is it? Who is it that brings a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifieth. It's God who justifieth. 
Who is he that condemneth? Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ who died. Who yet even makes intercession for us. It's Christ who died. You do not have to listen. Once God forgives you, that's him. He said, I forgive you. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what you even think. You, if you are guilty, he says, no, I forgive you. I forgive you. It's powerful. It's beautiful. I can under, you know, after that, I can kind of understand a few things. I can understand why David would say, you know, I will bless the Lord at all times. And his praise shall forever be on my lips. I can understand why he said that. Because I can't understand this. I can't, un- like, how could, Lord, how could you do that for me? Uh, Lord, I must, yeah, I, I know, I know. Lord, Lord I can't understand that. How, why? Don't you know what? I, I did this. I did that. I, he forgives us. That's righteousness. And it's beautiful. Oh, it gives me joy. Oh, it makes me glad. Because <laughs> you don't know how. I mean, it's powerful. I don't care what. A lot of people say that, oh, what was the greatest miracle that God has done? Has he... Is, was he walked on more? No, the, the greatest miracle was he forgave my sins. Oh, that's, that's the greatest miracle. You don't know how good it feels. So, Lord, Lord I, I can't help, help myself. What do I do? Whenever you are in that position and you cannot help yourself and you are stuck and he says, no, come here. My, and you think, well, Lord, what, what do I do? My power... My arm is not too slack that it cannot reach you. My hand is not too short that it cannot save you. I am the Lord. There is none else. A just God and Savior. Look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. For I am the Lord. There is no. I I have sworn in righteousness. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness. It will not return to me void. That unto me every knee will bow and every tongue shall swear an oath. He said that in Isaiah. And in Isaiah, and, and we know the story says, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For being found as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So that every, that at the very end, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, of who he is in Christ. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. For if you have not, if, if the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead dwelleth in you, it's that same spirit. We get the Spirit, not because of anything we did, because he chose to have compassion. He chose to have mercy. Once you realize that, I mean, it's, I, I, we, we all like to think of our guilt. We like to think, well, well why? We like to think, oh, I don't deserve this. Well, none of us deserved it. None of us. But he chose. 
oh, if he still he will give it to you. He does not want to withhold it from you. He wants to give it to you. And what the last thing I want to point out is he actually Paul quotes Isaiah from this, of all things. He does quote, Who shall lay in charge to God's elect? He's quoting Isaiah. Because Isaiah does say this. Isaiah in 57 through 9. Isaiah 50. Verses 7 through 9. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be confounded. Therefore, have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. He is near that justifieth me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Though they all shall wax old as a garment, the moth shall eat them up. Who is he that brings a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It's Christ who died. And yet is even raised, who yet even makes intercession for us. He echoes those things. Who is he that condemneth? Let him come near. Let him condemn me. He who justifies me is near. And the last thing I would say is actually how we tend, as I said, we have people, you will have people that will view certain things. uh, Calvinists will look at the word predestination and think of one thing. And it's it's all in our heads. It's the pictures in our heads that we learn. And it's interesting, I was actually reading a journal, not a journal, an article from the Wall Street Journal over Easter. Our bank, the where I work, we get it, and I just happen to read it. Well, well actually, every day. It's a very <laughs> I don't take it home unless they are done with it. So then, we can cut that out. <laughs> but no, you you would be surprised. I like I like I like I like reading news the newspaper because mainly because I I, I view as twenty uh, four hour news cycles. I figured. Nah, they just give me a fluff, and they and that way you have to pick through it. At least with this, it's just okay. Here's what we know. Here's what we got. No emotion. No nothing. No everything. It just hey, here's what we got. Skip the middleman. If you think about it, it's actually very good. <laughs> no, but the anyways, back to my point. They actually pointed out in this article. They said with all the people on Easter that will celebrate Jesus, the question remains which. Jesus, which Jesus? Because he says, in America, we have all these people, all these different groups that will claim Jesus supports their side. They, they claim Jesus supports, oh, he supports my, my, uh, my agenda, my policy, my this, my that. Everywhere they will claim, but it's, they treat him as if he's one-dimensional. So, for example, there are people that would say that Jesus supports what's called the prosperity gospel, meaning if you do good, he'll make you rich, he'll give you wealth. I don't think so, though. No. No. If anyone, if anyone has it, they can deposit it in my bank account. I will gladly take it. 
Take it off your hands. More, more money, more problems. Just give me your problems. Offers Any, Anyways, but that's, so there's people that will view it that, and they will view it specifically just for that. Then there's those, there was, there's those who portray Jesus as the Jesus of business. Back in the 30s, they actually tried to do this. There was one person in 1938 that wrote a book and portrayed Jesus as a skilled entrepreneur who took 12 uh, self-employed people and built a multinational corporation with them. They read him through that light. I kid you not, that's really what did happen. The latest was in 1996 when uh, there was a woman that came out with a book that portrayed Jesus as a manager who always was in constant contact with his boss. So you can see, you can read it through several different things. It's, it's how you view it. The problem is that they treat it as one-dimensional. They only focus on one aspect. And the problem is, at the end of the article, I like how one guy, this researcher, put it. He says, when you come down to it, they, can all, they all focus on using Jesus for their ends. But the problem is, by doing that, they basically discredit their own view. Because if you're choosing an image of Jesus in opposition to somebody else's image of Jesus, who is, they say, well, he was, he was poor. And they say, well, what about this? What about this Jesus? No, not my Jesus. My Jesus. And then they bring something to back it up. And the problem is, he says, by choosing an image of Jesus that fits them, they discredit their own movement. If you're having to fight with an opposition, opposite image, you've already lost. And he says they forget the one thing, the simplest thing. It's the simplest thing that Jesus came down here for, that Jesus came for. He came, he died, and he rose again three days later for the forgiveness, so that he could forgive us our sins. That's the simplest thing. You can have all these people that will try to say, well, no, Jesus supports this. No, Jesus, again, God is his own person. He is for what he is for. To try to change anything else is besides the point. It's treating him as if he's only for one thing. And God said, I'm not, I am for what I am. I'm not here for your little, your little games or your little parts. No, I am here to forgive. I am here to save. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's my business. If we, and he shows, he does that by showing mercy and compassion. That's what he came for. Clear and simple. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to those that give generously to this ministry. If you would like more information, please visit our website at landmarkapostolicchurch.net. But have a great day and God bless.